1992, Clint Eastwood starred and directed a very good film. The film won the Academy Award for Best Picture that year. It's a dark film. It's an unflinching look at all the themes that are common to the Western genre. It was called Unforgiven. And in it, Eastwood plays a character, an assassin really, with a sordid past who has apparently, apparently, given up his wicked ways. He repeatedly speaks of how he had been tamed or healed by his wife, who has now been dead for about two years. He hasn't killed anyone in years. He hasn't touched whiskey in a good while. He doesn't run with women or outlaws anymore. What he is, in fact, is a rather unsuccessful pig farmer. And as the the film unfolds, it becomes clear that despite this, what we might call moral cleanup work, In Eastwood's life, there has not been redemption. Thus the title of the film. And the the ambiguity, the tension of dealing with the guilt, even in spite of of a kind of new way of life, is always a haunting presence in the film. So to live, to live, even with your act, cleaned up as unforgiven that's a crushing burden the force of the film rests in its recognition that guilt is a real and a devastating power in life even in our world where the reality of guilt is denied or it's explained away, or it's reduced to some kind of psychosis, it continues to wreak havoc. I always find it curious that we live in an age which denies the reality of sin, and thus guilt, and yet we constantly find ourselves guilty of a whole new array of transgressions. Often transgressions that didn't exist yesterday. But nonetheless, we're guilty. We're guilty of these crimes and these sins. We can say these words. We can't say those words. We can have these attitudes. We can't have those attitudes. It turns out that the rejection of our Puritan past creates a kind of new Puritanism. It turns out that the sin and guilt problem does not, in fact, vanish. It just gets moved around. And this is because guilt is an objective reality. And it mangles true human flourishing. In our text this morning, Psalm 32 confronts this head on. And it points us to the Lord, the only remedy, the only path to liberation here. And so Psalm 32, we'll look at it under two headings. Forgiveness. 
verses 1 through 5, and instruction in verses 6 through 11. So, first here, forgiveness. The psalm begins with the conclusion, really. What is the conclusion of the whole matter? It's the joy of sins forgiven. And verses 1 and 2 here, they stand like a kind of banner over the whole psalm. Blessed or happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one to whom the Lord does not count their sins against them. The psalm starts with a double, a repeated beatitude. Blessed is he or blessed is the man. Some translations, it's blessed is the one, blessed is the one. So, since we're all sinners, all have sinned, this means there can be no blessed men and women apart from the forgiveness of sins. And taken the right way, or the way a text like this understands it, this means God wants you to be happy. God, the eternal, ever-blessed one, the ever-happy God, the ever-happy one, the one whose life is infinitely full and whose being as Father and Son and Holy Spirit is a communion of joy and delight, a communion incapable of being diminished, that God, nevertheless, In his overflowing goodness, he creates. And thus, creatures like you and I exist. And God created us for fellowship with himself. This is the great end of existence. For sharing his blessed life. His own communion that he has as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God wants you, indeed created you, to share in his happiness. And so there's something profoundly true. It is not trite at all, taken the right way, to say God desires our happiness. It was said of, uh, of Jonathan Edwards, the, the great 18th century American philosopher, theologian, first president of Princeton. So it was said of Edwards that he was the happiest man in all of New England. Happiest man in all of New England. And our blessedness, our happiness consists chiefly in this. This forgiveness of sins. That God has said no to our rejection of his fellowship. And that he's acted out of who he is to forgive our sins. Now, this is common. there's, There's no new news here. But we can never lose sight of the sheer joy of this. This is a certain, this, the root of all our blessedness is this blessedness that God forgives our sins. The root of all blessedness is this blessedness. God. The ever-happy God forgives your sins that you might share in his happiness. Notice there are three words 
in the text that are used for our condition in verses 1 and 2. Transgression and twice, the, tri, twice related words for sin. And the combination of all three are there to press home the full scope of the human condition. But there's a glorious sort of counterpoint to this in the text. There are three words also used for our pardon. Forgiven, covered, and the word imputes or counts in verse 2. Forgiven speaks of the burden, the weight of guilt being lifted. When God forgives your sins, he stoops down in Christ, takes the burden and says, this burden is too much for you to bear. You can't carry it. I'm going to lift it from you. And when we speak of sins being covered, we refer not to hiding what's sort of unresolved. We refer to being washed and purified in the Lord's mercy. And then there's this word counts in the text or imputes. It's a legal term. And it refers to our standing before God as righteous. And so the point of the text is that your sins are fully dealt with. They're forgiven, they're covered or wiped away, and the Lord does not charge you with them. Now you may hear the echoes here of the Apostle Paul in in the book of Romans in chapter 4, where he talks about our free justification in Christ. This blessedness, Paul says, is the blessedness of the man whom God counts as righteous, reckons as righteous apart from works. And so at the outset of Psalm 32, we are pointed to Christ. Because it's only there that you can escape that horrible label, that moniker, unforgiven. By faith in him, God forgives your sins. And he counts or reckons you as just. The same way he did with Abraham. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting or charging our sins to us. That's a summary of the gospel. And the last phrase here of verse 2 says, Blessed is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. Meaning the one who's not hidden his sin, but has openly and freely confessed it. Forgiveness, its availability, its fullness, it removes the need for deceit, for lying to yourself and lying to other people. Honest and open confession is the doorway to being, as Jesus called Nathaniel, a man or a woman without guile. Forgiven people are not crafty people. Deceitful people, people with guile. This is the joy, the joy that never ends, the joy of sins forgiven. And it has been called, Calvin called it this, but others have done it too, the very lifeblood of the church. This is why we confess it every week in the creed. It's the forgiveness of sins is a kind of social lubricant that makes community possible. 
There are two ways to deal with human sinfulness in in general. One is to avoid other people. The other, if you're going to try and forge a community, a city set on a hill, a new humanity, if you're going to go that way, then you're going to need the forgiveness of sins. Most people choose the first way, by the way. So, if we look at the teaching of of Scripture as a whole, it is a sober reality, and we find it throughout the Holy Scripture, that God hates sin. But he does so because it poisons and derails his designed fellowship for which he created us. This text is the joyful counterpart that there's more joy in heaven over one repentant sinner than over 99 who need no repentance. The forgiveness of sins, we do it weekly, we need to do it daily in our personal lives, but it's something which might become passe to you, but it never becomes passe to God. There's great joy in heaven when God forgives your sins. Nothing is more glorious to God. Nothing's more fully in accord with his character, his infinite goodness, than the forgiveness of our sins for the sake of his dear son. God is never more, if you will, godlike than when he pardons sinners because he seeks that his creatures be happy and blessed in his ever-blessed and happy life. But this, this is, as we said, this is the end of the story. There's a little backstory in the text, what we might call David's painful memory prior to his forgiveness. And that begins in verse 3. Sigmund Freud once said, I've quoted this before, I'm sure, that forgetting is willful activity, meaning we tend to suppress what we don't want to remember. And we tend to remember what is really, really important to us. And I think that's largely true. All of us, of any number of years, have memories we'd rather forget. Clint Eastwood's character, that's one of the strengths, has memories that, that are visibly strangling the man. The past is a problem for us as human beings. This is why guilt is a problem. The past doesn't just vanish off into the ether. It remains. It abides. It's a source of turmoil for us. And the remedy, then, is not suppression or guile. The remedy is to drag these memories to the foot of the cross to confess these things and have them met with the greater memory of God's free mercy. This is the Christian way of dealing with guilt. Acknowledge it and acknowledge that the mercy of God swallows it up. It is greater. And so David remembers, does some remembering here. He says in verse 3, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy on me, and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. He's recalling his stubbornness, his refusal to confess, his refusal to admit reality, and the very real fatherly hand of God's discipline on him. 
the descriptions sound sort of like a sickness or a depression. The tensions created by, by disobedience and guilt are real. They're bodily. Or they can be anyway. They can and they often do have physical consequences because we are embodied creatures. This is why the confession of sins and the assurance of pardon is at the heart of what the Christian tradition called the cure of souls, the healing of souls. This is an objective reality David is is portraying here. He's not saying I simply had guilt feelings. He's saying this this sin alienates me from God. It creates a kind of paralysis. Sin distorts and disorients our lives. It's a terrible burden to bear. And so here David's confronting it. In many, many psalms, the psalmist is convinced that his cause is just and that God is going to finally rescue him. Here, he knows he's guilty. And here, he knows there's not going to be deliverance until there's confession. And that comes in verse 5, finally. I acknowledged my sin to you. Verse 3 says, when I had kept silent. And that silence is broken with confession. Forthright acknowledgement. I did not cover my iniquity, David says. This is a glorious thing. We uncover our sins. We uncover our sins. And then God gets to cover them in his mercy. Proverbs 28 says, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And so like the the prodigal son, David comes to his senses and he confesses. The text says, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Notice, forgiveness comes from God immediately upon confession. There's no interval. There's no probation period. There's no scolding. There's no begrudging from God. He delights to forgive sinners. He does not humiliate his children. So when this guilt is left unacknowledged, it leads to paralysis. It leads to distortion. Guilty people are erratic. Guilt creates a kind of erratic thing in our lives. It thwarts our own natures as creatures as they came from the hand of God. But when we own up to it and we confess guilt, there's life. There's new movement. Like being unchained, there's liberty, there's a lease on life, and most importantly, there's a restored relation with the one who created you for fellowship. Christians are sometimes accused of being obsessed with sin, and of course, anyone who pays any attention to sin in the modern world is probably obsessed with it. And we take it with dreadful seriousness, for sure. But it is often lost sight of that the reason we take it with seriousness is because the end and goal of our existence is joyful, happy communion with the ever-blessed creator, and sin mangles that. 
We don't take sin seriously because we're morally censorious by nature, because we like to berate people, because we like to go around and point out everybody's faults and stick our fingers in everyone's eye. At least we shouldn't. We take it seriously the way you would take an immediate threat to your family's well-being seriously. So let's look then at how David, now now restored, beginning in verse 6, exhorts us in the light of his own experience. And this is our second point, instruction. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. It's as if David is saying to us, Look, avoid the misery that I went through in my guilty silence. Don't bear the burden like I did for a long time. Pray, speak, talk to the Lord. He speaks in verse 6 of praying at a time when God may be found. Which reminds us that we don't have an infinite amount of time to repent. And the time... Now that Christ has come, is now. Paul says now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. God is found. Let all who are godly pray to you while you may be found. God is found. He is near in Jesus Christ. And we, we should have recourse to the cleansing blood of Christ on a daily or even an hourly basis. And so the text says, surely the rising of mighty waters will not reach them. Probably referring back to the troubles of verses 3 and 4, using water as an image. Water in Scripture regularly represents danger, opposition to God, chaos. The point here, of course, is that the God who forgives us becomes our haven, our refuge. Forgiveness is wonderful, But its central wonder is that it restores us to the Father's favor, to the Father's care, to the Father's smile. You see that clearly in verse 7. You are my hiding place. You'll protect me from trouble and surround me with songs or shouts, literally, of deliverance. It's interesting. The silence in this text, which was first broken by confession is now a series of joyful shouts or singing. Forgiven people are free people, and free people sing. Guilty people do not sing. Free people sing. Even forgiven Presbyterians can shout. It's not illegal. The choice here is laid out in verse 10. Many are the sorrows or the woes of the wicked. Here, it's, here the sorrow in view is, is the fact that they, they won't repent. They won't confess their guilt. But the Lord's unfailing love surrounds. Same word as being surrounded by shouts of deliverance in verse 7. The Lord's unfailing love or his steadfast love surrounds those or the one who trusts in him. So, The psalmist is saying this, to experience God's forgiveness, yes, it's a legal reality, but it's also a reality that's lively and experiential. 
To experience God's forgiveness is to experience his embrace. It is to be, as the text says, surrounded with his covenant love, with shouts of joy and renewed fellowship with him and his people. And this pardon, which renews our fellowship, then leads to instruction. You see this in verse 8. God himself speaks in the text and says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. This is an interesting progression of thought in Psalm 32. To confess your sins, to receive the Lord's mercy, is to then make yourself teachable. Right? In that posture of being forgiven, you're now ready for divine instruction. You know another sign, sure sign of guilt, besides being erratic, is being unteachable. Unteachable people are almost always guilty. Forgiveness restores teachability or docility, humility before the word of God. This goes back to the point that God pardons our sins so that he can have fellowship with us. This, by the way, is one of the reasons, or an illustration, of why in the historic liturgies, such as we have here, the word of pardon, the assurance of pardon from from the minister who represents the Lord, precedes the words of teaching and instruction. There's There's a confession of sins, there's an assurance of pardon, and then God says, as he does in this text, now I will instruct you. Now I will teach you. I'll counsel you, the text says, with my eye or my loving eye upon you. This is the intimacy God desires with us. It's it's an eloquent intimacy. Because God is an eloquent God. Teaching and instruction. Counsel. This is the mode God wants to relate to you. Through, you know, through speech. And the reference here to God's eye being on us when he, when he teaches us. It's not meant to be frightening. Previously, his hand was upon David. And that weighed heavy on, on David. But here, it's his fatherly, watchful, caring eye which is on us. And so, verse 9. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. This is how David was. He's like a dumb animal in verses 3 and 4, while he refused to confess, to repent. The the book of Proverbs tells us, Proverbs 26, the only way to, to control or tame animals involves some form of coercion. Or force, a whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, a rod for the back of fools. God does not want to have to deal with us as beasts or as fools, but as sons and daughters. Say whatever you want about a horse or a mule, you cannot simply counsel them. As James says, you have to put a bit into the the mouth of a horse to get it to obey you. There's an extraordinary dignity. This goes back to the point I made that God does not humiliate his creatures. 
When he forgives us, he, he wants free children. He prefers to talk to us and to counsel us, not to coerce us. That's why he forgives us. I mean, after all, this is central to what it means to be a human being. Speech, talking, differentiate us from the beasts, from the animals. It's basic to your existence in the image of God that you use words. For you're made in the image of the eternal word. And so, words... Talking, speech, are a glorious thing, and that is how God communicates with us. Of course, I'm not talking about hearing voices. We're talking about he speaks in Holy Scripture and directs us to Christ. This is why God summons us back in our guilt. He wants, God wants intelligent cooperation from his creatures. I mean, he could just be a military commander and issue orders. But here, he's a master tutor or instructor. And this is one of the glories of the new covenant. Remember Jesus says in John 15, he says, No longer do I call you servants. For the servant doesn't know what his master's doing, but I have called you friends. Right, you might bark at a servant... You might use words to a servant, but you don't do this. You don't teach and instruct and counsel in this fashion. And Jesus says, I call you friends for all I have heard from the Father I have made known to you. Now get this. When when God calls you back to himself in Christ, he, in addition to allowing you to share in his happy life, Another way to put that is, he allows you to overhear the conversation between the Father and the Son. All that I have heard from the Father, I make known to you. Not only is God a communion of life and light and delight, he's an eloquent speaking communion of life and light and life. And thus, he wants to speak to you, to counsel you. And so full fellowship leads to full-orbed instruction of the free sons and daughters of God. And all who've been forgiven should relish the Lord's counsel. Finally, we get this exhortation. It's a command to joyful praise in verse 11. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. You know, it... So you have gladness, you have rejoicing and shouting. They're all present here. But it's a glorious God who pardons his creatures, seeks to talk to them and instruct them freely in their dignity as image bearers. And then, you know, when he commands us, he commands us to rejoice and to be glad and to sing. And this echoes back to the opening, verses 1 and 2, the blessed happiness of sins pardoned. It's criminal for us not to be glad or to refuse to rejoice or to sing or to shout because God himself has pardoned all your sins. And he commands us to celebrate. 
So, Psalm 32 should be a psalm you know and return to. St. Augustine, he said that the beginning of wisdom is to know yourself to be a sinner. In other words, to, cut, to, to be honest with yourself. And with that, David surely would agree. And this psalm, Psalm 32, was one of Augustine's favorite psalms. In fact, it was said to be his chief favorite, his favorite psalm. And that makes sense, because after all, Augustine knew a good deal about the burdens of Eastwood's character. He knew gnawing, life-sapping guilt. Right? He's the one who famously prayed in the midst of his own struggles, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. He knew the weight of the label, unforgiven. And he not only read Psalm 32 often, but when Augustine was dying, he had it inscribed on the wall near his deathbed. Isn't that interesting? Augustine is dying and he wants Psalm 32 written on the wall. The man who had been forgiven of much and who spent a subsequent lifetime managing words, hearing the Lord's counsel, speaking and writing in a way few have had. He wants Psalm 32 on the wall so that he can remember to confess his sins, to receive the Lord's instruction, so that he can prepare himself to enter into the never-ending joy that pardon promised him. So I want to charge you, I want to encourage you, inscribe it on your own heart. Psalm 32. Go forth like David and like Augustine in the happiness, the happiness, the blessedness, the new life of teachable, forgiven sinners. Praise be to God for the forgiveness of our sins. Amen.